Bringing a child into this world can be a difficult decision. And sometimes that choice gets made for you through an accidental pregnancy, or, as some may already know, through the inability to naturally conceive, despite your best efforts and most heartfelt wishes. Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. I'm your host, as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Francis Jones. Frances is an author, speaker, and advocate stemming from her 20-year journey of being unable to conceive children of her own. She explains how hard she was on herself during those two decades and the toll it took on her life. Eventually, we bring it back around to overcoming those feelings and the success you can still have if you're in the same boat, but no spoilers here. Just listen to the episode. Let's learn to stop punishing ourselves for our biology. Welcome to the show, Francis Jones. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you and your audience. Yes, thank you so much for being on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself for the audience? Okay, my name is Frances Jones. Um, I'm an author, a speaker, one who really have a heart for helping others. I'm an advocate as well. And so the name of my company is Overcoming the Emotional Stigmas. I'm sorry, the name of my book is Overcoming the Emotional Stigmas of Infertility, Bearing But Not Ashamed. And that's an over 20 year journey of my inability to have children and all of the negativity that I placed on myself because I was never able to conceive. But in that book, I also share all the tools and tips and techniques of how I was able to bring myself out of the negativity so people, or rather so I could have a place in life and know that infertility no longer had control over my life. Yeah. And that's, you know, a deep emotional tie to have to, you know, what you speak on. What is infertility? Just for everyone unfamiliar. Okay. Well, infertility is basically a, it's a diagnosis. It's really a disease, but it's diagnosed if a couple is actively trying to have a child for at least one year and is not able to. And so basically the doctors basically contribute that to infertility. Okay. And then obviously you had kind of a personal reason to speak on it. Um, you know, what, what really gave you the drive to like make this your mission? Well, I went through a lot of heartache over that 20 years of not trying to, not able to have children. And I didn't tell anybody really the depth of the emotions that I had been experiencing. And what I ended up doing is that after I was able to become free from it, I realized that there were others who were yet suffering in the areas that I had suffered in. I walked around with an invisible mask and pretending like everything was okay, but in my heart, it was breaking. And when I got to the point where I was free, I remember others who were yet going through. And even though I had no plan to even tell about my journey, I had no plan of writing the book. I actually was planning on doing a fictional love story, but something came over me and I made a decision to be transparent about my life as it related to infertility in order to help somebody else. So it was all about just helping somebody else not deal what I went with. Yeah. And like you said, you know, 20 years of, of dealing with this yourself, you really kind of understand, you know, a lot of the heartache and struggle that people are feeling when they're going through this. Yeah. Um, I know infertility is different for every person and we all have our own experiences. With me, I was never able to conceive. There are some who are able to conceive, but they have miscarriages. And so for each person and how we deal with it is is personal and is very different. But the one thing that we all have in common is those negative emotions and not really knowing how to deal with them. That's the common denominator in most cases. Yeah. And it's kind of the thing that, you know, you can write about and say like, look, I know this is hard and, you know, I can't, I can't understand exactly what you're going through, but this is what I was feeling. I imagine it's what you were feeling. And here are just some ways that I, I dug myself out. Yeah. You know, 
it's amazing to me is that I had no idea the impact of what my story would make in the lives of others. Like I said, I was just wanting to help. But I've had so many people to reach out to me, thanking me for just being transparent and sharing my story. And I've had some to say it's almost like I was looking through their window and was able to see their actual lives. They see their story in my story. And so because I'm so willing to be open with it, people know the sincerity of my heart. And because they're able to resonate with it, that's where the trust is there because they know somebody gets it. They know I get it. Yeah. And that definitely means a lot because you could read, you know, scientific study after study or, you know, listen to whatever just general mindset coach. But having someone really know what you're going through makes a lot of difference. Yeah, it does. It makes a huge difference. We're interconnected in that way and it's it's like a bond and the thing about it is that you know you want to be able to help as many people as you can and i can't physically be where they are but if my words can reach them then that's a comfort to them as well yeah it's kind of you know you do what you can and accept what you can't but help as many people along the way as you can yeah that's so true so When we're talking about infertility, does it generally affect males or females more? Well, depending on the stats that you listen to, I've seen one in eight couples. I've seen one in six and one in four. It really doesn't really matter the stats as far as that's concerned. But infertility is one third affecting women. One third is male factor. And then one third is the both the male and the female or unexplained. And so there are a lot of men who are challenged with infertility, and I believe it's just as big an embarrassment or a thing to to not feel comfortable with the men as just as well as with the women. And so, yes, it impacts men in a great way. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, based on, I think I always lean back to this, like the Hollywood angle, it's always pushed that like, oh, well. It's the women that are infertile. It's always it's always the female side of things. And so I think a lot of people probably think that, that they're like, oh, it's got to be 90% women and 10% guys. But what you're saying is that like it's actually a pretty even split. Yeah, it's a, it's a large portion of men. And I think, you know, they don't talk about it just like women don't talk about it. It's not, it's not an easy subject. You know, it's not something that you would want to go and broadcast. And I think sometimes the husbands, um, they hurt probably more than some of the wives because especially if they know their wife really desire to have children and they know that, you know, they're not able to give that to their wife because of something that's going on in their body. And so I believe it also just has something to do with the masculinity and virility of a man, you know, being able or not able rather to to bring that desire to life that that wife wants. Yeah. And like you said, it's not something people share because not only do you kind of feel like you've, you've failed at whatever you're doing, but you're also sharing something deeply personal, especially if you've been to like, you know, physicians about it, like you are sharing some really personal things. Yeah, that is so true. And the thing about it all is just, the hurt that goes along with it. You know, marriages are being destroyed because of infertility. People are getting divorces. And and there's even maybe cases which, you know, of course, there could be infidelity in the home because of this. It's, it's, a, it's a situation that is hard on everybody involved. And just being open with my own story, it is my hope to bring light to this situation, to this conversation. So those who have never been challenged with infertility can have an inside view, so to speak, on what happens in the life of a person who has been challenged with it. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. You know, and like you said, there's there's so many ways this can affect your relationship. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't just go to you know, the infertility, like it spreads kind of beyond that. And I have to imagine a lot of that is the stress of it all, you know, especially if you're trying and you're not succeeding and 
you look around and you see people like just doing it by accident. Yeah. Like you, you have to kind of look at that and it puts like an emotional weight on you. Yeah, it does. It does. I mean, I know when I was actually actively trying to conceive with my husband, you know, I came from a very fertile family. My mom, she was able to conceive 10 times. She had another sister that was able to conceive 10 times. Another one that was able to conceive seven. All of my sisters have children. All of my adult nieces, with the exception of one, has children. And then just even looking at my my stepdaughter, you know, she has four children. So I'm around all these women who were able to have something that I could not do. And so it made me feel like less of a woman. It made me feel unworthy and like damaged goods. And maybe I had done something to cause it. It didn't rationalize with me. I didn't understand why everyone else in my family was able to, to have children, but I couldn't. And it was hard. Yeah, I have to imagine it is. And I don't want to assign blame to any given thing, but are there some common causes that lead to infertility? Well, I can talk specifically on my story. Sure. Um, so when I was in college, I would be in severe pain for the first day or two of that time of the month. And I did not understand why I thought it was normal because I came from an era my mom was born 1925 so we didn't really talk intimately about those type of things so I kind of learned it the hard way so to speak and when I was having that severe pain uh, in college I would have to crawl literally from one room to the other because I couldn't walk I thought that was normal but years later I found out that I was diagnosed with stage four endometriosis and scarring had taken over completely my reproductive system. Uh, my ovaries, I had a laparoscopy and a laparoscopy is basically just a procedure where the doctor goes in with a little telescope and a light and they look within the womb to see what's going on to figure out you know, what the root of the infertility issue is. And when the doctor did the laparoscopy on me, um, he saw that my ovaries were literally glued to my back and there was scarring everywhere, adhesions. What they did was they tried to run blue dye through one tube, well, both tubes rather, but it ran through one, the other tube, it didn't flow through. And so it was so severe that they, only thing they could really do was unstick the ovaries. And so I believe in my heart that that was red flag, a red flag for me when I was dealing with all that pain that I thought was normal. And perhaps if I had been uh, more informed about what was going on with me, we may be having a different conversation today. So the thing about it is not being aware of what's going on in your body and not really checking into things when something just doesn't seem right. I believe that's probably why some of the cases, at least in my case, was the reason or partial reason of what caused me from not being able to have children. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's very unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear that. Is endometriosis something that just like happens or like, I, I don't quite understand what endometriosis is. Sorry. Well, what endometriosis is, is basically just scarring of the, the reproductive system. And so what basically caused it in my situation is that the scarring had was given, been fed by the blood flow. Okay. And so what the doctor did was in order to try to kill the endometriosis, he put me on this medicine called Lupron. And what Lupron was supposed to have done was put me in menopause, and then that would kill the source of what was feeding the endometriosis. So it's just scarring the body. Think of it this way. It's like poison ivy, as an example. And so you may see a tree that has poison ivy all over it, and the tree is basically consumed with that poison ivy. It has taken over. That's how endometriosis does. It finds a life source. And then it just began to spread and take over. Now, in my particular situation, there was severe pain. But there are some women who are diagnosed with endometriosis and have no pain. 
So I don't know why that is the case. It depends, I guess, on what's going on with the body. But with mine, it was severe pain that went along with it. And the only way that was able to be determined that was that laparoscopy. Now, the second time after I went to a fertility specialist, um, I also had the laparoscopy done again because it had been two years since I had the first one. And so the endometriosis was still there. And this time my ovary was literally glued to the front. And the same thing was just too much, too much damage, too much adhesions. But it just basically caused difficulty in me conceiving along with a diagnosis of low uh, egg count and low egg reserve. So, you know, it was a combination of things in my situation. Yeah. And, you know, when you said like, oh, I felt severe pain, but not all women do. That's extremely unfortunate because I'd love to be able to give people like, oh, you know, not all of this is normal. If you feel extreme pain during this, you know, go get checked out. Maybe you can catch something early, but it's not even that. Like some people don't know they are going through this at all. Right. Now, there are other indications that there could be something going on, not necessarily related to endometriosis. And there are other, you know, diagnoses that relate to infertility that didn't occur in my life. But, you know, having heavy cycles, you know, that's uncommon. A person should look at that as an indication. And even if they're having, you know, strong menstrual cramps, you know, go and get that checked out because it may not be normal. Anything that just seems abnormal, that's something you need to pay attention to. Sure. And that comes down a lot, I guess, to paying attention to your body and knowing, you know, what's what's normal for you and what should be normal in general. Yes. Because yes. like you said, you know, you thought this pain was normal. You're like, oh, this is this is normal for me, you know, but if we were you know, all properly educated on this, this subject, people would know like, oh, it's not supposed to hurt this bad. Right, right. And see, another thing too, is that when I was in college, I wasn't really going to get physical checkups. And so that's another thing that we as women and men should do, especially when it comes to the reproductive system is to go and get those checkups, go and get those 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 pap smears and those things that will give indications that something's going on. Now, of course, you know, I'm not a medical professional and I can't give advice. But the thing about it is this is just know that if we're not checking ourselves on a regular basis, then there's something could be going on that could be early detected if we just actually went and did the things that we need to do on a on a normal basis. Sure. Yeah. It's all about, you know, taking care of yourself medically. Yes. We do a lot of things that are pre-screening for other things. Like I think I've had a blood test every year of my life and it's not because I have some, you know, blood disorder, but because they're like, Hey, this is how we check to see if some things are wrong. Right. Um, so, you know, just doing those things, we can protect ourselves, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it doesn't make it any easier. Right. No, it doesn't. <laughs> So is infertility becoming more common or do you think we're just becoming more aware of it? Well, in the black community, infertility is on the rise. The black community is being diagnosed with infertility probably one and a half times more than Caucasian women. And I believe partially that is because, you know, we may not be going and getting checkups like we should. It may be part of the diet. I'm not exactly sure because, like I said, there are so many different types of things that go on that could cause infertility. But I don't. I also think awareness is key, especially as it relates to those who've never been challenged with infertility. You know, the education part of how they may have conversations with us. But if we realize that we have been actively trying to have a child and something is not happening, let that be an indicator to go and get checked out to see what's going on. And so, you know, that can be the beginning of it all. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know it was affecting some populations more than others. Mm -hmm. And I mean, 150% is a lot more 
Like when you said one and a half times. Um, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, one and a half times more. So yeah. Yeah, that's that's quite a lot more to be affected by it. Yeah. Interesting. But it, it made me think because I didn't know if it's just that we weren't comfortable as a society, like globally, talking about infertility. And that's why we never really saw a lot of mention of it until I don't know, the last 40 to 50 years, maybe. Or, you know, if it was truly like something has happened, be it our diet that we're taking in, you know, more whatever it might be, and that's causing something. Or like I said, if we're just, we weren't comfortable talking about it, and it's always kind of been this bad. Well, definitely most people are not comfortable talking about it. Like I said, I kept it hidden for many, many years. Um, my husband, he didn't know the depth of the emotional pain that I was going through. Of course, he knew that I was having challenges being able to conceive. Um, but we don't talk about it. And for various reasons, you know, for my reason is that I didn't think anybody really would understand, especially when all of my female family members had children. They don't really know what it feels like to to want to have a child and not able to be able to have one. And it's it's something that you're not proud to, to speak of. It's something that you keep hidden because you have a feeling that you'll be judged and criticized. You know, everybody is not kind when it comes to certain situations. And so you keep it hidden because you just don't want anybody to know. Yeah. Well, and that's something you... You know, obviously there's there's a lot of stressors and you know, worry about your physical and mental health when you're going through these, mm-hmm. you know, you're like, man, I, I can't conceive and I'm, you know, I'm feeling all these feelings and I'm carrying all this stress. But a lot of that can last beyond the time window where you're trying to conceive like you carry that for years, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, actually. um let me give you a little level set so I can build a, a picture of, of my situation. When I was 19 years old, I was having a conversation with an acquaintance. And she said to me, she came from a big family just like I did. And so we got on the topic of children. And she asked me how many kids did I want? And so, you know, I immediately said I wanted five kids. You know, I came from a big family, loving family. And she looked at me and she said, you want five children? I'm like, yes. And she said, well, for one in five children, you're a real woman. Now, fast forward to me not being able to have children. And I'm thinking now, oh, wow, I can't even have one child. Does that mean I'm not a real woman? So I was tying being a real woman with what happens in my body. There was another occasion, uh, my husband and I, uh, we had just gotten married in the late fall and my very first mother day, cause he had a daughter that he had full custody of. She was four and a half years old. So when we married, she was five and a half. And so we were at church in our very first mother's day. And I sang, I was one of the ones who sang in the choir. And so, you know, we was getting ready to go and celebrate, you know, my special day and everybody was hugging me and congratulating me and telling me happy mother's day. And I was all excited and I had one person that walked up to me, big old smile on her face, arms wide open. And she said, happy Mother's Day, even though you're not a real mother. Now, I'm thinking to myself, why would this person even say this to me? I was raising with my husband, our child full time. I wasn't a biological mother, but yet I was still a mother. And so now, and it was right a few months before I discovered that I was having infertility challenges. And prior to my husband getting married, my husband, I getting married, um, his dad had this father, soon to be daughter-in-law talk with me. And so he pulled me aside and he said to me, uh, you know, my son, he loves kids. And I said, yes, sir. I know that. And he said, no, he really, really loves kids. You understand what I'm saying to you? And I'm like, yes, sir. I get it. I understand. And so now when I discovered that I'm having these challenges, all of these things are coming to my mind. You're not a real mother. Your husband wants kids and you can't give them to him. And you are not a real woman. 
And so all of those thoughts were playing havoc with my mind. And it made me feel like I wasn't worthy. And so I carried that every time with me. And so even when my husband and I were going through fertility treatments, every time we would go through a cycle of treatment and I, you know, had this sonogram done and I looked at the sonogram image and saw that there was nothing there, even though in my mind, I'm trying to envisualize something was there, that a birth, had, a conception had actually happened. And every time I'm beating myself up, every negative pregnancy test, every time I thought I had a pregnancy symptom and I would check the internet and convince myself that I had successfully conceived and then go through that finding out that I hadn't because it's a negative pregnancy test. And so over and over this cycle, every month for years, this went on. And so I was so, I, I lost myself. I gave infertility permission to control my life. I was so consumed in trying to have a child that I didn't know how to break out of it. And that was one of the hardest things going to baby showers, even though I always went and I always presented the best gift that I could possibly give as though I was buying that gift for my own child. And I'm smiling and I'm happy, but then I'm burned. My heart was bursting open because I'm constantly not getting something I truly desire. And so, yes, it carried with me for a long time until I had to go on a self-discovery journey and reconciling my heart that what was happening to me was not because I had done something wrong. It was because a part of my body just wasn't operating as it should. And if you look at the case where, you know, some people may be diagnosed with high blood pressure or some with cholesterol issues or some with diabetes, they don't beat themselves up and say that they're less than a person or less than a woman or a man because of it. But when it comes to the thing that we as women feel like we were partially created to do, which is bring forth life and you can't do that. That takes on a whole different meaning. And I had to come to reconciliation with that. And it took a while to do that. Yeah, I I have to imagine. And and there was a lot of things in there where I was like, like this thought can't exist. Like the, the biggest one for me that I think, I don't know why it is, but it really like gets to me is hearing like, oh, even though you're not a real mother. Yeah. And I'm like, you don't have to be someone's biological parent to be a parent. Like exactly. universally across the road, if you are a stepmother, a stepfather, an adoptive parent, like you're a real parent. Yeah. Like no matter what, like you're raising that child. That's your kid. You're a real parent. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, it's just I don't I don't know. People see things differently and and that's part of the stigmas and that's part of the heartache and why people don't want to share their stories because of people making comments like those. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just, it like, it blows my mind every time I've ever heard someone voice an opinion like that. Yeah. Where I'm like, you couldn't be more wrong. Like, especially if they are raising a child mm -hmm. and you don't have a child, like I, you definitely don't get a vote in what a parent is. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's uh -huh. it's all about education and, and that's you know one of the reasons I wanted to write my book. Um because of that, to help people to have more awareness of the things that they say and so they can consider what they say before they say it. I mean so many things are insensitive that they're they're being said to those of us who are challenged with infertility and even those of us who decide to be, you know, child free. On purpose, you know, there are judgments there, judgments of, you know, oh, something must be wrong with you because you don't want to have children, you know, and then thinking that you're not trying hard enough if you're trying to have kids and you can't. And one of the biggest things that um, a lot of us who commonly have problems as it relates to infertility. Now, this wasn't an issue for me, per se, but people think that having children in the house is all that you want. And so they'll say, well, you know, there's a lot of kids out there. Why don't you just adopt? But what those individuals don't realize is that it's more than just having children in the, in the house. Adoption is not a Band-Aid. When you have a desire 
to create life and carry that life within you. You may love the child that you adopted, just like my husband and I, we adopted two brothers. They were under the age of five when we adopted them. But at that point in time, I had a stepdaughter and two adopted sons. But yet I woke up nine years later in tears, crying and asking God, why was I not able to have a child biologically? So it's more than just having children in the home. And I really want people to understand that, that there's no quick answer for infertility. There's no quick band-aid. There's no quick solution. What is right for one person may not necessarily be right for the other. It's not a one-size-fit-all, just get kids in the house. It's all about what feels right for that person. Yeah, and every person, you know, is a unique individual in that aspect and that, you know, some people want to adopt, like that's their preferred thing. And some people want to give birth to their own child. And then still some people choose not to have children. And it's also weird that I see so much criticism of that. Is that like, well, you're supposed to, you know, get married and have a kid and quit your job and live with the children. And mm -hmm. it's like, that's not for everybody. Like, that's a really specific goal. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking about, you know, when my husband and I, we had gone through several um, stages of fertility treatments. And at that time, we were going through IUI, which is basically uh, artificial semination. And so we had tried several times and it didn't work for us. And so the fertility specialist brought several options to my husband and me. And one of those options was uh, to continue with the artificial insemination. Another um, option was in vitro fertilization. Another option was donor eggs. And the fourth option was basically to adopt. And so even though medically speaking, the donor egg may have been the best solution for me to be able to get pregnant, but it didn't feel right for me and my husband. We didn't want anyone else to be involved in the conception of our child. And we also wanted our child to carry our own genes. And so even though it may have made more sense, it just didn't feel right for us. But for some others, you know, donor eggs is the right solution. For some others, surrogacy is the right solution. For others, it may be you know, the adoption or fostering. And then it may be what we get called getting a fur baby, you know, having a pet or just being child free. You know, it's it, it's the individual and what feels right for them. And so adoption felt right for us. Uh, my husband, he, after he, re I realized rather that, you know, the fertility treatments weren't going to happen and he came to me and he said he believed that the Lord would have us to adopt. And so I had been so consumed in trying to conceive that adoption never entered my mind. But when he said that, it felt right. So we came into agreement and made that decision and went through the courses in order to, to be certified to adopt. But like I said, that's not everybody's desire. And it really depends on the person. Yeah, of course. My my ignorance in the topic is showing because when you said artificial insemination and then in vitro i didn't know there was a difference mm -hmm. so I, I don't i still actually because uh, we didn't talk about i don't know what the difference is between them i mm -hmm. actually kind of thought in vitro was artificial insemination well so you have iui which is intro um I always get the word mixed up, but it's artificial insemination. So basically what it is, is that the woman, she receives injections and those injections is to stimulate the egg so the egg can mature. And so what happens at that point in time, um, the husband, he has what you call um, a sperm wash. So making sure that's prepping. So once that has taken place and the egg follicles have matured, then the the wash sperm will actually be inserted into the woman and so it will fertilize the egg okay. now as it relates to in vitro even though i didn't 
physically go through that because that's a whole nother story as far as cost and, and finance and what's concerned. But as I understand it, is that you actually have the eggs removed from the body, from the female, and they are put in this Petri dish. And so um, they turn around and fertilize the egg in that, that dish. And then once those eggs are fertilized in the dish that's been retrieved, then it goes back into the womb of the woman. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. I'm learning <laughs> things today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, like I said, I didn't understand that, but there really are like a lot of options out there that are all very different from each other because yes. I have to imagine some people are like, you know, where you said a donor egg didn't feel right to me. I am sure there are people out there who are like artificial insemination is, is even too far for me. Like I, I have to do it all natural as opposed yeah. to like any, literally any assistance, which I guess if that's right for you, that's for you. But, you know, like you said, there's so many options all the way over to, you know, I think like the furthest one is kind of surrogacy where um, in some cases that's only one partner involved as well. Yeah. Um, and then that's like someone else is carrying your child. That's pretty trusting, I think. Yeah. To yeah. be like, you yeah. got it for me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, um, when a person is going through infertility and they want that child desperate enough, they're willing to try some things that they probably thought they would never do yeah. because they, they really want that child so badly. And there's no right and wrong as far as, you know, I see it. It's just, you know, if a person is able to afford those type of treatments, and that feels right for them, then, you know, they have to do what's right for their family. And I just feel like, you know, they should be able to make that choice without judgment from anyone. And like I said, I didn't talk about my fertility treatments with my family because I thought maybe they would be judgmental. You know, none of them had experienced what I was experiencing. And so I just didn't feel comfortable talking about it. I didn't want anyone I was already was dealing with another enough negativity as it was. I didn't need any more. And I just didn't trust that they would understand. So I kept it to myself. Yeah. Well, and there's no, like, at least as far as I see it, there's no morally wrong answer in any of these where it's like, if surrogacy is right for you, surrogacy is great. If donor eggs are right for you, donor eggs are fine. If like it, whatever it is, it's fine. It's fine, but you have to be okay with yourself at the end of the day. Exactly. Like, if you know it's not right for you, you can't force that on yourself because, you know, having a child is something that you're going to have for the rest of your life. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, even though I don't know this specifically in a personal aspect, but I think that can be a challenge with the, the husband and wife as well, because let's just say as an example that the wife wants a child so badly that she wants to, you know, have someone else have donor sperm for her. And that may not be comfortable for the husband, you know? And so, you know, there, there are so many, so many factors that's involved in all of this. And like I said, some people find themselves separating because of these type of things. You have to be in an agreement, you know, and, even though sometimes, you know, spouses will separate because they can't come into the agreement. Now the family has been shattered because, you know, the person doesn't want to, to come into alignment and agreement with that. And then, you know, you have couples who one spouse doesn't want to have kids and Spouse came into the marriage saying that they didn't want to have kids, but the other spouse was hoping that they would change their mind and they never did. And so one wants children so desperately, the other one doesn't. So it's all about just being truthful with yourself and truly hearing what the other person is saying. And if that person is adamantly saying that this is not what they want, you have to listen to that because you could be bringing problems in your life further along down the line. 
Yeah, and, and different people are going to have different stance on each thing because obviously listen to your partners, right? <laughs> like that's mm -hmm. the, the crux of the issue is like if one of you is firm on they do not want to have children, you can't force that choice on them because this is like your relationship is a 50-50 and they, you don't get to override their 50% for whatever it is you want. But, you know, some people, like you said, are not comfortable having like donor sperm, whereas other couples might be comfortable with the wife carrying children for another couple. Mm -hmm. Like that could be extremely uncomfortable for other people, but for some people that's totally fine and they don't have any issue. And mm -hmm. that, that is something you have to have a conversation about as your relationship couple. <laughs> you yeah. guys have to talk about that. Definitely. Definitely. So in talking about things and obviously in writing your book, have you had that conversation with your family where you're like, this is, this is my journey. This was my problem. And this is how everything has gone. Well, uh, they didn't find out, especially my sisters, they didn't find out about everything I had been dealing with until they, they read the book. And many of them were very surprised and hurt that I didn't trust them enough to share that. But like I said, how could they understand? You know, I just, you know, you have to feel comfortable about it. And But when I decided to share it, I didn't share it because I wanted them to understand I shared it because I wanted to help others who were still struggling. And that was my whole reason. Like I said, I, I had no, I don't know if I said this or not, but I had no intention of writing this book. I was planning on writing a fictional love story. And I had actually started writing that love story. But then I came to a point where all of a sudden my gears switched. And I realized that you have a story to tell. And so many people are being impacted by what you have experienced. And so I felt like it was my, it was my duty to tell my story because many of us don't talk about it. And it's almost like I'm a voice, an advocate for those who are not comfortable speaking for themselves. And when they read my book, I've been told on several occasions, it's like, you know, they their life is my life or my life is theirs. And they thank me for that. So it's just all about just finding a way to help somebody else to know that you're not alone in this, that someone else has experience in it. And to be able to say, even though you may not be able to speak about it, at least you can find comfort in the words that I have written. And maybe they can buy the book for somebody and share that book and maybe they can get a way to understand it without them actively telling them about it. So it's a way to start conversations too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. And kind of the last thing that I had is kind of the last step that I guess people get to, which is how or when do you kind of move on? Like realize that this is your, your situation and you kind of have to accept it. Let me speak personally of what triggered it for me. After several failed attempts of trying to have a child and wasn't able to, I had to come to grips with it because it was too hurtful to keep repeating the same cycle over and over and over again. And the mental state, not depression, but just discouragement. And so when I finally had that last conversation with my doctor, my husband and I, we had just bought our, our first home and we had used all of the finances to buy that home. I found out though that the company that I worked for at the time had just instituted a $25,000 lifetime uh, for infertility treatment. And so I was really excited. I'm like, okay, you know, we can try the in vitro. But what came up with that is because of the way the insurance policy was written, as I understand it, I had to pay all of the money, or my husband and I rather, had to pay all of the money up front and then file for reimbursement. 
Well, we didn't have that kind of money because we had used basically all the money that we could pull from the 401k plan, all our savings, all the money that we had put aside to buy our new house. And so I went to the doctor, my specialist, and I asked him, was there any way that they could make an exception on our behalf where we can actually have the treatments and then file the insurance and then have the insurance come to pay them. But they told us that they couldn't make an exception. With that, I had to come to the decision that this is not going to happen. We didn't want to get loans because we already had this house note that we had mortgage, right? So, you know, I, I tried to contemplate how could we still come up with the money. And when I came to the, the realization that I wasn't or we weren't going to be able to do that, I had to do something to to reconcile with myself. And what I did was that very day I came home and I wrote a letter to my fertility specialist. I still had medication that was left over from my fertility treatments that, you know, I wasn't going to use and I didn't want them to go to waste. So I wrote a letter thanking the fertility specialist for everything they had done to try to help us to conceive. And I wanted to donate the remainder of my medicine to the clinic so they can give it to someone who had a better chance of conceiving, but just wasn't able to afford the medicines. And so I donated those, hoping that maybe I could help somebody in a small way to, to have the dream that I was not able to bring forth. Maybe they could. And so that gave me peace, knowing that I had closure on that spectrum. But the tears flowed because I knew that I was really finally giving up as far as that was concerned. And so that came to the place where I'm like, okay, enough is enough as far as fertility treatments. Now, my husband and I still continue to try on our own. And that's when I, you know, had these false realizations that I was pregnant and I would hop on the internet and search and look for pregnancy symptoms that I thought I had. I had imagined them. And then to come to find out when I did a pregnancy test that, you know, it was just my hopes. And so I did this even after I had this, I had adopted, even though after I had said that, you know, we're not going to go through the treatments because that desire just didn't go away. And so there came a place where, yes, I had to come to realization that fertility treatments weren't going to happen. I had to come to the place where, you know, it looks like I'm never going to be able to conceive. Then I had to come to the place that I had to find myself again because I had lost Francis. I didn't know what made me happy anymore. I didn't appreciate the blessings that I already had in my life. I had lost myself. And so I had to go on a self-discovery journey and learned me all over again. And I actually went back to my, my childhood, you know, finding the things that made me happy, things that I loved, the beautiful things that were about me. And after all of that, I realized that just because a part of my body wasn't operating as it should, it didn't make me less of a person. And so that was one of the big healing factors for me is that I stopped criticizing myself. I silenced the inner critic, so to speak. And in my book, I call her Accusalina because she accused me of everything. She said it was my fault. I was to blame because of this or because of that. And I had to silence that critic. And so I was able to rise above all of that torment, all of that negativity. And I was able to find purpose in what I had gone through. See, there was a Bible scripture that I couldn't reconcile with. And that Bible scripture says, in all things, give thanks. But I couldn't give thanks for being barren. But after I went through that self-discovery journey and I was able to move past that negativity, I realized that what I had was important for somebody else to break free. And then I saw purpose and I knew what that scripture meant. Because if I had not gone through what I went through, I couldn't be helping people the way I am today. So even though it was a difficulty for me and it was hurtful, now I'm able to heal others with my words and with my life that may still be going through if I wasn't willing to speak out. And that's a great message. I'll, I'll leave the audience hanging on that. But I'd love to give you a moment to just, you know, plug your book and the things you do and where people can find you. 
Okay, thank you. So the name of my book is Overcoming the Emotional Stigmas of Infertility, Barren but Not Ashamed. And you can get that book online pretty much everywhere. Um, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, Walmart online, any online retail store, you can find my book. You can also go to my website at heart, H-E-A-R-T, desires, D-E-S-I-R-E-S, coaching.com. Or just in the URL, just type heart, desires, fulfillment, coaching. Um, I started that company because I wanted to be able to help others to unlock and fulfill their heart desires one step at a time. And now um, I do transformational coaching as well as infertility coaching. And transformational coaching is all embodied in it all because we have to transform our thinking, transform how we feel about ourselves and our beliefs in order to, to accomplish the things that we want. I don't tell people how to get pregnant, but I can guide them and make a decision how what feels right for them if they want to adopt or go through treatments to help them figure out what's best for them. And so that's what I do in my life. I'm a speaker and I share a lot on social media as well as different women empowerment platforms talking about how I was able to overcome not just the challenge with infertility, but the challenges in life. So you can actually get to a place where you're not letting yourself stop you from getting the things that you desire in life. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I have appreciated this greatly. Mm -hmm. It's been awesome. Thank you so much, Francis, for being on the show. It, well, thank I appreciate you so much it. for having me. I really, really am appreciative of that. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Please take a brief moment to rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or Audible. The only way to help this show grow is to get new listeners, so do your part by telling other people that you enjoy the podcast. I'm always looking for new topics, guest ideas, and questions from the audience. To reach out to me, email dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or send a message to any of the show pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever else you find me. The October rankings are back to normal after last week. Number one, the United States with California and Washington as top states. Number two, Australia with New South Wales just barely beating out Victoria. Number three, the United Kingdom only losing second place to Australia by a single listener. Number four, Canada with top province Alberta dominating the others. And number five, Sweden with top province. And I feel like you're doing this to me intentionally now to watch me struggle. Skane. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. Sorry to all the countries that were here and got bumped, but you'll have to try harder. That's all for now. I will see you all Thursday for... What is this? A new psychic episode? <gasps> Buh bye bye